Aha! Did it! Dee Davis evening! Talk Bob Davis saying you're the boss! Grey Hallot, Matthew Greenup, Chris Bell, Alan Clippleston, Chris Gaskin, Samantha Lill. What it is! Got speeding up! Everybody's coming on board! Oh, I'm sitting down! Hello and welcome to Fish on Friday with a wee alcohol free Erdinger and we're now move position. I was dizzy actually coming all the way out here and coming into the control room. As promised, it's, um, this is the said control room and uh, Steve Ansis knows it passionately as the out of control room, which has been on many an occasion and there are stories of plenty tonight. Stories of plenty. Well, yeah, the time change. It's, uh, I was wondering, like, I messed up there. It's, uh, here you tour. Oh, Joe Vincent. My glasses, this is too far away from me now. Paul Slytons, Belgium, going to lockdown for the moment again. Yeah, here we are again. Back to fishing Fridays when there's no pubs. It's, uh, it took a lot of phone calls into Boris Johnson because I said my fingers are going down here. And I said, uh, I really appreciate it. So I'm locked down in some sorts. So if you could make it happen on a bit Friday so that we can drive people in on their laptops. So uh, it, it seems to, it might have worked. Looking dapper tonight. Yeah, well, I'm in the control room. I'm in the control room. And um, there's only one radiator in this entire room. And it's right down at the front of the, 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 the this room, which you'll see in a minute. It's massive. Um, and it, it, the, the thing was that Back in the day when we had the big mixing desk, which I'll come on to later, it, was, it used to generate so much heat. We had to have air conditioners in here with, it, with an air conditioning flow that um, spun air out and in, and we had to use it for the big amps and everything that were in the other room that I'll show you later on. And uh, so it was great. But then when it suddenly went into kind of computer technology and, and everything went digital techie, uh, it was... Uh, it changed, and there was no, there wasn't the heat generated from the the, the racks and everything that, that we used to have. So it's um, it's different. So and so that's why I was online today, and I was buying a small uh, heater for my for my wife in the her office, which is through the back, actually on the other side of that bookcase. Right, I have to pull it back so she can come out. And um, so Simona lives in the office on the other side of the wall, and so she's got a heater. So that was what I was buying two years this week. Uh, but it's been uh, one of them weeks. Really strange, strange kind of feelings. Um, it was kind of, I think it was James Cassidy, my mate James Cassidy who handles all the digital side. And, you know, we had those spectacular numbers on, on Spotify. But, you know, I, I called him up, you know, because we I was asking about something we were thinking about doing and I was thinking about doing. And um, he said, yeah, that was a good campaign, wasn't it? And it was kind of like, what, that's it? And I was like, bah. <laughs> and he said, yeah, it's been... And what he was trying to say was, it's, it's been a great campaign. And it, like, and he, I was waiting on this so far. But it was kind of... You know, this is Where do we go from here? It's, uh, 
you know, normally I would be in a situation where I'm out on the road and, you know, I'd be meeting people and doing things like shaking hands and hugging and eating in restaurants and going to bars and stuff and that. But I would also be doing a lot of kind of face-to-face -face interviews and, and, you know, album promotion and selling the albums on the road, avoiding postage, being able, being able to sell vinyl. But you go, there you are, it's a perfect piece of vinyl. It's up to you from now on. <laughs> Don't bend it. And uh, But yeah, so it was a kind of weird feeling, you know, getting to the stage where I'd been so used to doing interviews and, and now they're kind of... They're still coming in, but they're not as frequent. I mean, back, you know, a month ago, I was doing five or six interviews a day here. I'm here in this room. This is where I do all, this is my office, right? And, um, and you know, it's, it's suddenly, you know, dwindled now, maybe two a week, three a week. And um, it's they're still going on. But like I said, when James Cassidy said, well, you know, that was a good campaign, wasn't it? And it was, uh, and you kind of go, well, what do we do now? And... Now it goes down to kind of slow fire burning. It's, you know, Simone has broken all the pre-orders. They're all done. The the things I talked about last week regarding, you know, possible orders that, well, orders that we couldn't find within the software, right? Um, you know, we decided to just deal with that. Anyway, it's that time of the week. Every time at this time of the week, suddenly Dobies and Suttons and all the garden people start sending me messages going to buy things. Like it's, it should later. It should be nine o'clock when I've had a bottle of wine, and it's like, oh, that looks pretty. I'll buy that. And I'll buy three of them, and four of them, and then suddenly they all arrive, and you don't know where to put the damn things. Anyway, control them. It's uh, it's been a bit strange this week, and uh, you know the, the album's going into this thing where it spreads by word of mouth now, and it's and it, it's working, it's moving, and um. But we're now in a situation where Simone has got easily handleable orders to do during the day. And because we are as we are, you know, it's it's great for us. It's perfect because we can deal with them. You know, this, this is this is where I deal with it. If you've seen one of these, it's an Elegraph, an Elegraph uh, label. Um, it's a fragile sticker. I'm sorry, this is all mirrored. You're probably desperately trying to read the books behind my head and going, what is that? Holding up mirrors. What's he reading? What's he got on his stock? Anyway, these are the fragile stickers and the do not bend stickers. They mean absolutely SFA, right? It's, um, I stick them on the arms because this is where I do it. This is, here is, here is an album, an album box thing, which uh, I sit here and I take the albums out and I've got a box of albums at the back or I had a box of albums at the back. And uh, a box of discs. So I would say all those gatefold covers that went out to the people who'd got broken gatefolds, broken sleeves, they came from this this very area in the house. Stickered, stamped, folded, and then taken through uh, my wonderful wife with a, and I put the name and the order number on and, and went through. So that's kind of what I've been doing because, you know, and, and as is, the interviews have slackened off, I'm suddenly getting pulled into uh, lots of other things, which is uh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. It's, um, but yeah, this is the control room. Absolutely. Steve Lawrence from Toronto, hello. Patrick Voters, screen freeze. Oh, so has. My screen's frozen as well. Reload. Blah, 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 blah. I'll be back up. 
Come on. Yep. Oh, the Fugazi license plate. You've put, you picked it out. That, that license plate came from right above my head. That came from uh, a fan in, in Michigan gave that to me way back on, on you know, the first kind of uh, tour and stuff. The first American tour or, or touring. And um, I can't remember where I got it. I think it was Youngstown, Ohio, which is, there's a place. <laughs> Actually, this is really weird, right? I went down to the bank, right? I went down to the bank, the, the Bank of Scotland in Haddington. And um, Valerie, if she, you watch now, Val, and Val does all my Euro stuff because I've got a Euro account down there, so I pay Euros from there rather than blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so, and I'll rarely go down. And um, and I went down and Valerie didn't, wasn't there that week. And there was another young lady that was working behind the plexiglass counter with a guy who was um, the manager who was a bit like, who are you? Right. And uh, I went in to, to, to put, to, I was basically sending money across for the, for, to, to the Netherlands and to Dominic. Hi, Dominic, if you're watching. My production manager, because uh, he was paying for promotions and things. Anyway, so I had to pay this money. And I got talking to this young lady and she was in I said, you know, she was obviously from North America, but I was like, I'm going, are you from, are you from the States? And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, she was kind of quite nervous. Didn't know who I was or anything like that, but she was just nervous. So I think it was, she was, it was one of her first kind of weeks in the job or whatever, and she was doing, making a Euro payment, right? Which, making a Euro payment, you know, from here, right? You know, you'd think you were sending money to like Shanghai or somewhere, right? I mean, it's just... You're right, it's only Europe, it's only Euros. And I'd, I'd love to be able to do it online, but um, because you live in this island, you've got to sign up for a Euro account and you know, it's 150 Euros there and there, and then it's like, you know, a lot of money. Every t even though you're signed online, it costs you a lot of money to send stuff out, which is just for me ridiculous, but that's banks for you. <laughs> More of that later. Maybe. So... And I'm talking to a waiter, and she's very nice, and like I said, very nervous. And I said, you know, I said, well, you know, so where are you from, right? And uh, she goes, I'm from Ohio, right? And I said, I've been in Ohio. I've done a lot of gigs in Ohio. And I said, uh, the first gig I ever played in America was in Youngstown, Ohio. And she said, that's where I come from, Youngstown, Ohio. And it ended up, her, her husband was involved with kind of like one of these churches and he'd come across here and they're trying to set up a church in Harrington. She's a very pleasant young lady and stuff, but it was, I mean, very like, <laughs> But yeah, Youngstown, all the places, Youngstown. I remember Cincinnati and, and things playing, and then Cleveland, obviously, you know. I had great times out there. It was, um, the first tour, it was, it was absolute wonderment. It was just, you know, like, wow, every day was special. Even coffee cups were special. I suppose it's the same way for Americans when they come across here and see tart, little tartan Loch Nesses and things, Loch Ness monsters, they go, wow. <laughs> All sorts of shit. Every time the bus stopped, every, every time the tour bus stopped at a truck stop, it was like, cowboy boots, cowboy boots, cowboy boots. <laughs> buy shit, buy shit. <laughs> it was brilliant, it was all new, so. But, it's, um, but yeah, so that was Youngstown, Ohio. How the hell did I get to Youngstown, Ohio? You're, Austin Cotsell, my ex, went to, to university in Youngstown, Ohio. I spent a lot of time there. It was nuts. I went there, and this was, like I said, our first, our first kind of introduction to America, and it was like, you know, Ohio. 
we've got areas right in Scotland that are very similar to Ohio. Um, uh, crossing the west coast, you know, where the, the big steel mills were and things. Um, it was, uh, you know, th when they got hit by the unemployment, the same stuff. And um, and I remember walking down the kind of the main street in Youngstown, and the only thing that was open was an army recruitment centre with this really <laughs> like bare of a green beret outside. You know, going like, you know, want to join the army, son? Yeah. And that was what I remember, youngster. It was, it was, and we played the, the small theatre, which had this really weird name. And it was that, that was our, our, our first intro, and it was uh, really strange. But it was, but it was like Scotland. And I'm, I'm going to come on to this because there was somebody wrote in a question, and I want to take it on. Andrew Sidnoin, hello from Sweden. Letitia Abro, hello from Brazil. Basi uh, Marunia, I got my Welchmerz in the mail, haven't opened yet, waiting for my husband's birthday. So, happy birthday, Basi Marunia's husband, right? Fabio uh, Ruggerio Monteiro, Brazil. Uh, Richard, he's done all from my mouth. Sorry, just a bit of a vague, going back bad there. Donna Carter's good evening from Frank and Worrell. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, see, see all the books. I've been doing that. I love watching it because I, th I think everybody kind of like goes, right, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to be uh, doing a Zoom call or like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be doing an interview on TV, so I'm going to get like all the books that make me look really clever <laughs> or like get all the ones that are inappropriate <laughs> moved to the side. <laughs> but you can't read them because unless you've got a mirror, you can't see what's up there. Right. But yeah, I'm, I've been a book kind of collector for years. I find it very difficult to to give books away and stuff. Even I, I've got to. I've, it's like pulling teeth, right? You know, when I get to that stage where you've got shitloads of books, and my mum, my mum used to like. She would always like kind of when she was down in North Berwick, right? Our, our, our neighbours who were great, right? Avid readers, but they were quite happy at giving away books, and they'd pick up books, second-hand books, da da da. And they'd always give them to my mum, right? And my mum thought that I was bound to like them, right? And so I, my mum my, my mum you see, oh, here you are, son. There's, there's, a bunch, <laughs> there's a bunch of books for you. <laughs> You've gone, oh, for fuck's sake. And it's all, it was all the stuff. I didn't even, I wouldn't even read it on holiday, right? And it was, uh, I'm not going into the writers, but I mean, they were just like, nah. I mean, they weren't romantic novels, but they were all a real pulpy kind of, you know, you know. Um, you know, but you know what I'm on about, you know, action thrillers. <laughs> and uh, so yes, yeah, so I've got, I, I've always kept books, and when I was a kid, I, I used to, I used to keep all all the books. I was I was mad about books, and uh, it was like Famous Five, Secret Seven when I was really young and stuff. And um, and then I kind of moved up to Biggles. I was a mad Biggles fan. And um, Edgar Rice Burroughs, I was absolutely totally into Tarzan. It was, uh, Tarzan was just, you know, the books were incredible. They were so violent and, you know, you know, they, I mean, it was edge of the bed stuff. It was wonderful, right? And um, so I always kept books. And, um, and the, the ones that I really, really like, you know, they all go, they all have their little special places. So what's happened is, you know, I've got accumulated books. The bookcase behind me was uh, a th that was that took care of at, at that time. It was like wow, and I had spaces. It's like wow, I filled the bookcase. Then I had to get this one. So 
I've got this one behind me now. This is the my plants and animals. My working books. The Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. Right? That. One of my favourite books. I'll tell you about it in a minute. Concise Oxford Dictionary. I've got the Thesaurus. I can say Scotch Dictionary. And somewhere in there... Now, this is a book. I've hardly ever used it. I swear, right? But I used to kind of be into... The, the Dobies try to sell them potatoes. Right? The Walkers... Srwag It's not in Polish. It's the Walker's Rhyming Dictionary of the English Language. And you can look up any word in here, backwards and forwards, and find the rhymes and things, right? And it's got... Uh, I can't remember how to work it again. Yeah, it starts off with the ends of words like Bob Slay and Inay and Inveray, Way. All these kind of... All the rhymes that you can get, right? And then you've got Sigh, Thigh... And it's, you, you basically look up the last letters of the of, of the word, and then you, you can find all the the last letters of the words are up there. So there you are. Um, what is it? Olive, right? Derive, shrive, thrive, arrive, contrive. I contrive to buy an olive. Emulsive, repulsive, impulsive, compulsive. And yeah, and I used, I used to use this. I got this way back. I wonder if I've got anything written in the front of it. It was £6.75 net when I bought this. And I don't know when. I thought there might be some notes. I, I love books. When when you got old books, and you know, when you're cleaning up your, 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 your library, whatever, the library. <laughs> you're cleaning up your book cupboard or your bedside cupboard. Right, and you go through it and you sometimes find stuff right, in the, like, hidden away in the books. And then I find some really weird stuff in there. Little notes and some Polaroid photographs and things. <laughs> yeah, then you go, I better hide this and I'll put it in this book because I'll remember it's in that book. And then you completely forget about it. And like 10 years later, you open up the book and it's doof. Oh, Jesus. That's where that went. <laughs> that's, that's where that contract went. Uh, I literally, I have, I found a contract in a book that I completely forgot about. And then what else is up there? Oh, the, the reverse dictionary, which is kind of, it's pretty much the, the reverse dictionary is pretty much the same. But these are the tools of my trade. But I, I swear, I, I, I have normally with rhymes, I'm pretty good. I can find a way around it without having to go to the Walker's book. But I bought it as an absolute safety blanket. I think, I think it actually came from about 1984 or something like that. And um. And down the bottom is all my screenwriting books and how idiots idiots guide to, to to screenplay writing and just a load of other things. Step parenting. I've got a book on step parenting. Uh, Thousand and one foods you must try before you die. <laughs> Button impulse. And then there's all my other bits and pieces. That's the books that I've not read yet. And there's all sorts of stuff in there. There's there's Falada books. Um, a lot of kind of really heavy duty books. The poor had no lawyers about um, <coughs> Scottish land grabs. Um, there's what else is in there? Guns, German steel. A short history of everybody for the last eighteen thousand years. A light read. A light read. <laughs> but yeah, so this is it. These are my. That's the. I think it was Sandy Fearful. I think Sandy Fearful got me that. I'm pretty sure. Uh, hello, Sandy. How are you doing? And I'm with your bud.
with you, absolutely. Um, I hope things get better. But you gave me that. That. The burning, the burning bush of 13 Star. Uh, that's from a guy, um, I think he's called uh, Jürgen Kuss. And I was given that by the, the German fan club way back. And we used, I used that for the, the cover of this Ishimi album. And that one, I can't remember. I threw somebody in Bristol gave me that. And um, it was, I didn't want to put them in the house, so they came through it in a, kind of my office. And I'll lead on with that in a minute. There's a book, another bear, Darren. If you're watching, Darren and Kerry, hello. I hope you're doing all right. And this is kind of just stuff. It's just all stuff. That's my dad's AE badge, because my dad was like, you know, the garage and stuff. And it was my dad's AE badge from East Africa for when he was in Tanganyika where, on national service. There's a wee thank you thing from Thames Valley Police. Don't even ask me. And then there's various other things. An award I got from Poland. Uh, my dad's Ekosi cam badge. Um, something from Bosnia. <laughs> a meerkat. Uh, that's um, shrapnel from uh, the Somme that I picked up when I was out there with Simon Mostyn. And the books, those are all war books at the top. Different, all different history books. This one was Modern Magic. I told you about my... I told you about my, my, my grandfather, or my great-grandfather, when he, was, he worked in musicals. That's his magic book, and that's also his Burns book. And that's The Gay Galliard, which is one of my favourite ever books by Margaret Irwin. And this is my passport. This is my original passport. Oh, <laughs> brilliant. Ten guilders. Remember guilders. Must have been kept for a reason. This is my... No, it's not my first passport, it's my second one. And I've got those ones, right? They're, uh, they're DDR labels, right? So that was when I went into East Germany, way back in 1988, that was. Derek William Dick, British citizen. Cancelled. Good <laughs> night, but I've got some other, loads of bits and pieces of stuff. Shell heads. Um, down there is all my First World War books and my, my, a lot of battle books and things. That's some of my favourite American writers, like Tom Wolfe. And there's Russians in there as well. Sholokov, Steinbeck, Kerouac. Down the bottom is my Jack Elroy's and stuff and things. This is just a, a this is just a wee bit of it. These are books that just end up through here. The top section, that is all Vietnam. The entire top is Vietnam books. And this one, that's all Noam Chomsky and various people. Um, a lot of political stuff. Winston Churchill, an entire collection of the Second World War. Nam stuff, Nam magazines that I bought when I was younger. And a lot, that's all my music stuff. And a lot of biographies. And below that is all more political stuff and poetry down the bottom. It's a, it's, it's a real treasure. I can hear the ooze and the ahs actually coming out. There's my, in the corner, that's my letter from Bob Geldof and Harvey Goldsmith thanking me for my participation in, band, in Live Aid. There's my pass. 
platinum album for script, one of the last albums that ever got a few mind. I don't even know really how many albums that I sold with Marillion, but when I left the band, I stopped getting all the kind of, I stopped <laughs> getting all the discs. <laughs> well, I was glad because my toilet wasn't big enough. Right? Chasing the Deer, that's my Silver Cliff from, uh, um, that was from Nod of Robbins that I got from Scotland. There's a, um, I bought that off the guy him sounds that he, he, he did that years ago, way back in the, the 80s, the cartoon I did. My favourite Johnny Cash one, I, I had to get that framed. It says, it's Johnny giving the single finger, American Recordings and Johnny Cash would like to acknowledge the National Music, the National Music Establishment and Country Radio for all our support. I thought that was valid. And then, that was done by the Spitting Image cartoonist, there's various cartoons. That's me with Catherine Zeta-Jones and uh, Anthony Hopkins and Jeff Wayne. I've got a couple others up there. Tara, an Estonian cartoon. Tara, when she was really young. A signed Lake Valencia photograph that I was given in Poland. There's loads of things in here. Right. But, but this is the control room. This is, um, this is the room. Originally, that space there, that's now my office, that used to be um, uh, a room, it was like a storeroom, but my mum used to work in there. That was where the fan club, the original company kind of fan thing was in that room with all the stuff we had at that time. And that room was separate when this, there was a wall here. These are the, these are the actual discs that I do have, right? That's them all. And um, that's, that's my entire, my entire really career across two small walls. <laughs> I hate them. Normally, just the, the discs always say, where am I going to put them? Because you don't want to put them up and be really flashy about it. It's like, so they get put here in the back. But this room, like I said, there was a wall went across here. And, uh, and this was the original control room. This room here. And you can see all the way through to the kitchen. And um, furthest away there, where the wine glass is, beckoning me, right, is the kitchen door. That used to be where the original kind of guitar room was. That was a wall there. There was no French doors there. But the glass window that we're looking through was actually originally about three... I think it's three or four panes of heavily laminated glass. And the, the bits at the side, that was where the Lynn speakers were. And um, the big, heavy-duty outfield speakers. And where all the cardboard is, I'll walk you around. This is the packing area now. So when we're not, when we're not recording and we won't be recording again, it was, uh, when this was used as, as, when we used it for record, like just even doing Veltschmelz, Veltschmelz, the teeth, Veltschmelz at the beginning of the year, it was, um, you know, this was all cleaned out and this is where, Steve and I lived here for nearly, kind of like two years, three years. And this is where we did all the albums. And originally, as I said, that's where you maybe saw photographs of the board on Facebook that had all the, the, the names of the songs on and things. And there you are. That is the studio through there. This is my house. And I love it. It's absolutely perfect. It's just the right size for a big bear. 
But like I said, that was the outfield, the outfield, big, the big lens speakers. And this was where the desks are. And you can see on the floor, this is where the wires are. And even now, all the wires are still exist all the way under all the floors of the house. So, and there's still three or four kind of patch areas where we can patch all the way through here. So it can, it can always, could always be used as a studio. So when I moved in here in 2001, it was, uh, it was, it was a studio and it's over the years it's become this. But anyway, there used to be a big DDA, uh, I think it was a 56 channel um, uh, digital desk that we had there. And that fed through here to what is now the mail room. And in there, that was where we had the 32 track uh, Mitsubishi one inch digital. Was it one inch digital, half inch digital, can't remember. And a big studio, the studio two inch 80 uh, digital machine. So we had 56 channels there, but we had the 32 digital and the 24 analog linked up to run together. So you could record on digital and analog simultaneously. But what we used to end up doing was basically recording on the analog and then dumping everything across to the, the digital. But don't worry. I know there's probably some of you going, oh, for God's sake, don't get too technical. Don't worry. I don't do technical. You should know that. And um, you won't be getting a big spiel about hertz ratios and blah, blah, blah. This is a control room. That is what's called the toy rack. And that has been the most productive area, apart from when the desks here are at the front of the studio where Callum works and things, that has always been the most productive area. And it was called, they called it the toy rack because you can see all the spaces there. A lot of it was sold, a lot of it's gone a long time ago and there's been spaces filled with rubbish. There's only a couple of, um, a couple of units left over from back in the days. But I mean, everything, we had it all midi, so all the key, a lot of the keyboards and things were up there. But as computers came in, that was this is Steve's home. This is actually Steve's little area. But it's a tip at the moment. Look at that. This is my microphone stand with a, a top on it. It's specially made. It's a titanium stand. And it was made just to hit for my lip height so that I couldn't didn't have to bend my legs and I could hold it. And then... When that's gone out again, I can see it being used for like, you know, maybe growing climbing beans next year. Yeah. But yeah, so we've, we've actually, I mean, this is really strange, but there's no music in here. I don't have any of the amps wired up at all. You know, we tend to, you know, we just move things in here and, and sound it up when we're working. But um, that's my Kef 50s. These are beautiful wee speakers that we've been using for the, um, we were using them for, for monitoring when Steve was working. But this area here, this is where Callum, you know, does all his magic. And when Steve and I were, were doing the writing, we spent a lot of time at the, the front of the studio. But everything's soundproof to hell. You can see the depth of the walls. Just, uh, <laughs> it's just nuts. And that area there is um, going to be taken out in the next, hopefully, month or so. And I'm getting the blown Veloxes repaired and putting in opening Veloxes that let more light and more air into this because this is all, this place is all going to be changed. But it's a good place, this. But the big point of contention, and if my daughter Hannah's watching this, I mean, she'll be going like, don't even talk about it. The big glass window, right? That big glass window. Yes, there's a wife. 
She doesn't even realize she's been on. <laughs> Don't. Yeah, the big glass window is. Um... One thing I've got, and this, you'll understand why. I have got so many frame pictures. A lot of stuff that I'd like to put up. Some of the stuff I'm going to have to get rid of because I can't. I can't keep it. I bought that. Is that's a Scotland strip, and I think that was the Craig Levine team that played uh, one ten formation in front of the goal, and I bought the strip for four hundred quid and got it framed. Alcohol is a very dangerous thing. These are um, Friars posters that I've had forever that I love, and I've got an idea where they're going to go. There's the John Martin one. John Martin, John Cooper Clark, Invisible Girls, The Scars, um, Spirit. That's to be a third of our after Legion. That was a band that was run by Richard McPhail, the Genesis roadie. And there's Marillion Cruise and Solstice. Uh, last with the Friars Christmas Party. And I've got all, I have all the, I've got all the Friars posters, but I've got an idea of where I'm going to put them. It won't be in the control room, but I've got a place for them. But it's, um, I'll come back and take a sit down for a minute. Yes. And that, if it was sunlight, you would be able to look out on a beautiful red maple tree and you can maybe just hear the tumbling of the water in what I call the Japanese garden outside, which when I want to go out, I just go outside the wee door and I can go and sit outside on a chair and do a bit of thinking. And sometimes when Steve's working in here, I can go outside, listen outside the window and, you know, I could be writing and just hearing what's coming in without being in place. But this is where we do it all. You know, this is kind of, you can see, I sit at the back and then Steve's kind of normally down where the cardboard is. And um, this is kind of, we do a lot of our work like this until we get to late at night when it becomes the out of control room. And that's when, that's when, you know, we we don't tell Simona that, you know, we're, 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 away, we're through here working. <laughs> we're work, working on an epic, right? And I'm uh, sitting here drinking wine and, uh, or, Sitting here drinking wine and, and, and yapping away about shit, you know. But I really love this place. So, um, but I mean, the idea with this room is eventually to basically strip it all back to brick. And what I want to do is take out all the soundproofing, everything, strip it all the way back to brick and sit in it for maybe a month or something and just work out what we're going to do with it. But this room here, this actual part where we are, is part of the original, um, is part of the original um, farm building that was, the original farm building um, that we, or that I converted into the studio. And, um, and this was j just this part here. And I, I want to break up through the ceiling above me where it's where Victor Charlie resides. We've got rat pellets up there and it's been, it seems to be quieting down quite a lot, but Victor Charlie might have moved off and there's not the smells there used to be. So, um, you yeah, know, Charlie's gone. <laughs>
but this room was the original room where it went through there to just before the kitchen and that was where we wrote Vigil and um, the Vigil album was, was basically put together here in what was it in kind of 1989 when I moved up here and I think it was about April April 89 I moved in and um and it was just a, a wooden floored, kind of really cold, drafty building. And um, we had to put one of them big paraffin blows in. But we had the, the helping still piano, we had all the equipment. This is where we rehearsed and, and, and kind of this kind of wee space here. This was kind of the, the centre of it all. And um, and this is where we go into kind of the history of it. Right. When I left Marillion, I knew I needed to get a place where I could rehearse and put up a band. I've mentioned this in, in, in previous programmes, but you know, we when I was in Berlin, we spent thousands, I mean, tens of thousands of pounds, in fact, probably hundreds of thousands of pounds on rehearsal facilities, writing facilities, residential writing facilities. And what we should have put our heads together, and if we'd been clever, right, right if the management had, had, had kind of like, you know, perhaps nudged us right, a little bit more, then if we'd had a building, it would have been perfect. But you know, when I left the band, there was no building, there, was, there was an, wasn't an asset. But when I left the band, I knew that the, you know, the, most, the thing that I really needed was a place, was a centre where I could bring people together and, and bring them together you know, cheaply. You know? And so having, when, I, when it was my mum and dad that found, found this, this the, the, the farmhouse and the outbuildings that were going at the time. And back then, as I've repeated, it was like, you know, when I left Marillion, I left, I was very impetuous and I had no money. But what I did have was a house that was worth a lot of money in Gerald's Cross. And I managed to sell that house in the middle at, at peak price. And that money, I managed to get this place up, up here and start to turn place things around. And um, and that was kind of, like I said, where Mickey Simmons and his wife Sarah came up to. And they stayed here with us for months on end. Months on end. And um, Robin Bolt came up. Frank Usher lived down in, in the border, so he was kind of, he was commuting. And that's how we put the vigil on together. And that's how I managed to be, I managed to hold it. Because we're now moving to a very dodgy area where I've got to be careful what I say. And um, for legal reasons, and um, explain kind of how this came about, right? So I had the farm, I had the farmhouse, I had the outbuildings. The house was getting set up. We had the rehearsal. We had the rehearsal room here, but the album Vigil, the Vigil album, was recorded down at the Townhouse Studios in London. It cost a lot of money to do. And on top of that, I was flying back and forward. Being where I am, it was easy enough. It was only 20 minutes to Edinburgh Airport and it was only 40 minutes down in British Midland in those days. But at the same time, it was, it was you know, I, I wanted I wanted, the, 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 I wanted the area around me to be special. You know, I wanted, I mean, as I said before, you know, probably Rockfield Studios was a subconscious kind of... Um, push on that that lot right and I had this rehearsal room and we did vigil at the townhouse 
and then the album was released on EMI uh, and we had an argument and I wasn't happy with it. This is really quite strange because when I was earlier today when I was picking the songs, it was a case of, I got like, what's the five songs tonight? And I was sitting here and I went, and for some reason I thought tongues. And lo and behold, tongues just got absolutely smacked out of the park by, I mean, the votes it, it got. And I think it was a subconscious thing because I'd decided to work in the control room tonight. That I decided to, to do, do the kind of Fish and Friday from here. So, 1989, Vigil's recorded, right? But I didn't actually sign a contract with uh, EMI till it was round about the September time. So I left the I left the band. Let's get this through. I left the band in '88, right? And it was September October. I took on new management. Um, John Kavanagh, he's a beautiful guy, lovely guy, and he was also a former um, uh, EMI guy, like a big time EMI guy. I mean, you know, one of the kind of people that knew exactly how the inside of the machine worked. And it was wonderful. And I had Andy Field working as, as working in the from a live side and things, and it was a, it was a pretty good balance. But when I left the band. I, I was quite happy with EMI. I mean, I, I really, I loved the company, you know, and I loved the people there, and I liked the vibe. I liked being sent EMI. You, you felt part of a really big family back then, and um, everything was kind of working okay. And then I left the band, and there were some people who were disappointed, right? And there was people that tried to talk me back into rejoining. Maybe you should go back. And it was like, no, I'm not doing this. And I was suddenly a singer who had left a band who was signed to EMI. And how these contracts worked, well, you know, most of the times, it's like they have this thing called, it's called a leaving members clause. And basically that means that if you're signed to a record company with a band and one of those members or one of those members leaves that band, then the record company have the option to pick up that member on another record contract on exactly the same term, or, or well, on similar terms to what the bands are. But basically you couldn't go in and, and renegotiate, renegotiate the contract as I found out. And um, we started negotiating with EMI basically at the, the beginning of 89. And we were having a lot of to and fro. It wasn't nasty at all. I mean, I was quite happy to be signed to the company, but the leaving members clause that I had was basically 50% um, less uh, um, advances and, uh, you know, less royalties. And it was basically a whole chunk was getting taken out of the, the, the contract that I had with EMI for Marillion. And I kind of went, well, why is that happening? It was kind of... Um, 
you know, why is, you know, I'm going solo. I've still got a piece of session musicians. It's not as if it's kind of any different, but that was the way it was. It was like, well, if you're going to be a solo artist, you're going to be making more money, therefore you get less royalties or some sort of weird shit like that, right? And as I said, I mean, we were all friends at the start of it all. And we came to an agreement where I got basically, it was it basically the Marillion contract and my contract were, were basically the same. It was like, okay, if we're going to do this. It's the same. And I, but I wanted an uplift. I wanted a raise. If we, if the album went out, then I wanted, you know, if we do well, then we want a bonus, which was part of the, 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 the contract. And we agreed it and we shook hands on it all. And I signed to EMI and I think it was September 89. Although I was still technically part of the, the thing. I mean, I'd already done a, a lot of demos, which were done through John Crawley, my friend who was at Hit and Run. They gave, they basically kept me alive in that period because I got such a huge publishing advance that I was able to pay Mickey, pay Robin and keep myself alive. I mean, basically the money came in and the money went out. And it was like, you know, this is the unit and it paid for the demos and it paid to get the rehearsal room equipped and things. And then Vigil came out and it did pretty well. And then we got to the summer and, you know, I was wanting to do a lot more with it. it was, you know, I'd done the Scottish tour in, in kind of 89. I'd gone out in 90, did the European tour, spent a lot of money upon the production. And my idea was to build it forward. It was to keep moving forward with the live thing. And, and EMI pulled the plug of the live thing at the Albert Hall when I sold out the Albert Hall, you know, at the end of my first solo album. And, um, and it, that was when it all went horribly tits up. And... Um, at the Albert Hall, it was kind of, we just said, like, you know, we're not unhappy with it and we're going to walk. And that's when it all started. It was like, bam, you might never, none, nobody from EMI came down to Albert Hall. Uh, everybody was banned. There was notes went out saying that, you know, uh, you're not allowed to be in contact, blah, 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 with fish and stuff. And there was, I mean, for example, EMI Electrola in Germany, you know, I had a lot of friends there and I couldn't talk to them. And they didn't know what was going on. And all I wanted was was basically a renegotiation of, of my contract. And after the Albert Hall, right, we basically, uh, the war started. And people who I consider friends um, had to basically go with their own pack. And it was really ugly. And um, there's still a few people in EMI that I kept in touch with, but I mean, I, it really disturbed me at the time. And the thing was that the head, the managing director of EMI at the time was a guy called Rupert Perry. And Rupert Perry was somebody I really admired. I'd had a lot of private conversations with Rupert over the years about being in Marillion and, you know, he was kind of like a bit of a father figure to me. And he was somebody I deeply respected. He was a great, um, he was a great music business person. He was one of those people that came all the way through the EMI ranks and went through every department and knew everything about EMI. I mean, that was one of the things about EMI. I mean, it was like, it was serious corporate. And, um, and Rupert Perry was the guy that I kind of shook hands with. And when we got down to, the nitty gritty of when I walked and the, the when, when another set of dogs were unleashed from the chains and something you've got to remember because it comes very much 
into play regarding this place is I was still arguing with Maroon. I was still all the way through 89, right? I was, and into 90, I was still involved with the Marillion case and it was just loggerheads. So, you know, money was pouring out the door from here in legal fees. And then I took on EMI. And there was a lot of things I was unhappy with. And what got to me more than anything was that I was, I had become reliant on getting advances from record companies to make albums. And under the EMI contract, they had um, creative control. And as far as if they didn't like something, they weren't going to release it. And that's a very, it's a simplified version, but that is the, the, the blunt impact of that. If they didn't like it, they didn't release it. And they could keep you signed on there and keep you bouncing in out of studios and you were paying the studio bill. Because when I paid for an album as with Vigil, as we're in the current, still in the negotiation to get the, the Vigil license, EMI owned the copyright, you know? And it kind of, it got to me the fact that, you know, I, I, was, I was making albums, they had the creative control, I paid for it and they owned it. And um, it kind of stuck in my craw. And the decision I made in 1990 was that I was never going to be in a position where I couldn't write, create and record music, right? I was never going to be put in a position where I was dependent on somebody else to enable me to do that. And so I decided to build my own recording studio. And I was the least likely out of anybody in Marillion, right, to get a recording studio. As you well know, I'm not a tech head. I'm not an equipment guy. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not in that side at all, but it was done. There we are. Yeah, like I said, I, I decided I, I was never going to be beholden to, to any company and I wanted to, to, to build a place where I had freedom, right? And so I started putting this together in, in 1990 and the idea was, that the idea had always been to create a, 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 a better rehearsal room somewhere that, that, that was bigger than just the, the, the little wood room with the paraffin here. And I wanted to build something more. And then it was like, okay, well, let's build a studio. And as I said, I was the least likely you know, to do it. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was going to do it, right? And I, I brought in people that knew what they were doing and we started to create this place. I got, eventually got planning permission, um, which was, a, a fight to get the, the local farmer wasn't particularly happy about he was very happy at the start but when he actually saw the building he wasn't happy so we had to go through a bunch of hoops to get this this built and I kind of designed it and with a guy and I can't remember his name it was so long ago and um, it'll be one of the files in the attic and we, we built this ac across using the, the rehearsal room that we already had and built another kind of duplicate and um and this was the control room. And um, and the first album that was recorded here was Internal Excel, right? And that was with Chris Kimsey. So, when Chris came up with, um, with, with Thomas, Thomas Steeler, the engineer, 
God bless them, little men. They came up in the, the, the kind of summer of 91 to a studio that nobody had worked in before, right? Run by a singer who had no idea of the technical aspects, who was completely dependent on other people, and blah, blah, blah. And it was, <laughs> it was wonderful. It was every day there was huge problems. It was like, you know, was, that had to be dealt with. And it was always at Christmas, like, this needs fixing, sort it now. So I became the, I was like the, the artist and I was the studio manager getting pellets off the producer. A lot of great stories for around them. Um, Chris Kimsey and Thomas Steeler playing naked croquet on the lawn at three o'clock in the morning in the security lights, absolutely off their faces. That was one to see. But I mean, uh, the whole studio, like it was kind of, it was suddenly there. And I built a residential block as well. There was a, another little small stable area and I got a little block built with four rooms and I had the Rockfield studio vibe. I had the rehearsal, the residential, the whole residential studio bit. And that was what I was hoping for, that I could basically hire this place out when I wasn't using it and hire it out as a, a, a proper bona fide residential studio with a house engineer and everything. But that was to be it. But I mean, the problem was that I was fighting EMI at the time. And... You know, I look back on it and it was like, what I was thinking about, I've got no idea. I mean, no wonder my then wife went absolutely mental at me. But it was that. But, you know, I'm fighting EMI. I'm fighting Marillion. And I'm building a studio that basically this cost 300 grand to build, right? With all the acoustics, all the wiring, all, all the, the different surfaces and everything were the cabling the air conditioning system the fresh air system because i had air conditioning in the control room but all the rest of the studio was fresh air because as a singer i hate conditioned air and i wanted it to have wood and i wanted it to have stone and i wanted it to be part of the country and i spent 300 grand and i must have been fucking insane and it was a uh, but now now this is the best house I've ever lived in. I've, I love this space. And as a little interesting aside to this, right? Back in 1993, right? After Polydor had thrown me out the door, right? And I was going, what am I going to do, right? And I, w I'd, I had no idea what was going to happen with my career. I was outside a, a major label for the first time in my life. And... I did what you normally do. I got a medium. <laughs> Not a medium fry. I had this medium come in to do a, a kind of seance thing. And we were through in what was the studio lounge, which became my, my bedroom and Simone and I's bedroom, which is now where my mother is, right? And in that room, in the studio lounge, in 1993, I met this medium from, uh, he was Scottish, but he spent a lot of time in Switzerland, who'd been recommended by a friend of mine. I was desperate, right? I mean, I was, I mean, I was, financially, I was in an area I'd never been before. It was like, you know, it was like things were just going, I mean, big spiraling galaxy of shite, right? And I saw, and the medium and I talked through in the room. And, I was thinking that, you know, I'm not going to be here for, you know, a long time You're in this house because I thought we're, we're going to lose it, right? And I wasn't sure 
whether I should just sell up and move and things, you know, and um, and he talked to me and he introduced me to my grandfather who was William Dick, who ran the Dick Brothers Garage. And it, w it was basically your grandfather's here, blah, blah, blah. And the way he talked, I knew it was Tiger. I knew it was, it was, it was William Dick. And um, long story short, what he said was, you should make things and sell them yourself. Right? And it was something as simplistic as that. You should make things and rather than give them to other people to sell, you should sell them yourself, you know? And that to me was basically the welcome to the independent record industry. And that was why I started Dick Brothers, which is why it became Dick Brothers, which was the name of my grandfather's garage and my father's garage. And why, if you remember, you might have seen the logo with the three men round the anvil. That was my grandfather and his two brothers round the anvil that I still have in my garden on the other side of the studio. Right. And that was the inspiration behind the Dick Brothers Record Company, which went down. It's like they said, build a castle. You know, they can never build a castle in a swamp. I didn't. It burned down and fell in the swamp. It was a bit like that, you know. So when Dick Brothers. Dick Brothers was a huge learning curve for me. It was a huge learning curve. I thought too big, you know, tried to go for an empire and like, it just went bang, right? But like I said, it was through there when I got the advice, right? I was still convinced that I was never gonna be able to own this place for much longer. I was, and, and I wasn't feeling right in it and I said to him, can you basically, can you, is this, can you, you see me being here? You should I leave, should I sell up? And he said, and he said, no. He said, this is where your soul is. And he said, this is where you're meant to be. He said, this is a, this is a special place for you, right? And I took it to think that it meant the whole place, right? So I thought it meant the main house that's next door and the residential block. I mean, basically the entire farm area that I had at the time. And it wasn't until years later, in fact, it was probably only about maybe eight years ago or so, that I, I realised that when he said, you're meant to be here, because after that meeting, you know, the house went in 2001 along with the residential block, everything went absolutely horrible, right? But I'm here, and I'm here in the place that the medium said, this is where you should be. And what he actually meant was, you're meant to be here in this building, right? And that's why it's such a special place for, for Simone and I. But that's the kind of story behind it all. But this is why it's interesting because tongues, the subconscious calling of tongues, right? Tongues was written about Rupert Perry, right? Tongues was my explosion, right? It was my, I, I couldn't do anything to get at them, right? I, because I mean, there was a lot of really bad vibes around at that time. I mean, it was like, you know, naively, and people are going to accuse me of being naive, you know, and I should have recognised more about the industry that I was working in, but I've explained it to people that, you know, when you're standing on a rock and you think you're on a stage with a spotlight and then the spotlight's switched off and you're, you're basically pushed off the rock and then you find out, and when you lift the rock and then you find out what's underneath it, that was kind of what happened to me in, in that period in 1990. I think going through 
the Marillion one not so much, but definitely the EMI affair really opened my eyes up to the industry that I was involved with, right? And it was a shock. Like you said, you can call me naive, whatever. But I had to learn so much. And, you know, with the lawyers, it was, you know, I was travelling, was, you know, I was on those British Midland flights. I knew, I knew every stewardess and steward on the British Midland flights going down to London. I knew the timings off by heart. You know, I knew exactly how long it took to get into Edinburgh Airport and da 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 and sail through. And, I, you know, it was like bam, 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 all the time up and down for London. Legal meetings, legal meetings, sitting there analysing contracts. And like I said, not only was I dealing with EMI, I was dealing with Marillion at the same time. So you had the two heads on and all the emotions going on and flying around. And I was supposed to be writing an album. You know, I was supposed to be writing the second solo album. And uh, and that was why Internal Exile came across as being perhaps a bit fragmented in that it didn't really sit in a direction. Great songs, but no real direction. And when Chris Kimsey, who Chris I love, right? When Chris came up here, he was dealing with an artist who's he'd, at that time, before Rain Gods was full of chocolate frogs, right? And I was really, I was angry. I was, you know, the interviews I did at the time, I mean, like, Jesus. I mean, some of them I look back on now and I go, it's embarrassing, man, you know? And, you know, when I look at me now and look at what I was, you know, what was now 30 years ago, I was a very different person. And I was really angry. And I was coming to terms with ego as well. I mean, you know, I was a guy from a big band and, and all this stuff going down. And Rupert Perry got it. He got it in that lyric. And uh, what added to all the kind of, the kind of, the vitriol and the poison that was kicking around at the time, and just to throw that in the mix, right? Because my, my problem was that the, the, the lawyers that I took on, right, were lawyers that had been dealing with EMI over another couple of artists, and these lawyers had, had basically done the job for these artists against EMI, and EMI was sick of it. And they were waiting for an artist to come up that they knew how much money they had, because you have to remember, right, the guys who paid my wages, or the guys that paid my money, were EMI. So they knew exactly how much I had, right, how much I was going to get. And that was how, you know, I mean, I explained it at the time, by saying I sat there, between the lawyers and my management, who was ex-EMI, right? And EMI, and they had a fight, right? And it was basically, I shorted the whole thing and then paid the electricity bill. I mean, I basically stood in the middle of this electrical storm and then paid the bill at the end. And it was horrific. And it nearly, it, it, it went a long way to um, screw me up in, in the long term or in the medium term, I should say. And um, so I was building the studio and I wrote Tongues and Tongues was basically how I felt. It was, uh, you know, I was I was having to read these contracts. I mean, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd never really read them properly. Now I had to read them properly. And then we were finding out kind of where we stood and all the rest of it. And I was, I was suddenly in the world of legalese and it, it wasn't a good place for me to be. And there was loads of conflicting opinions and all the rest of it. And it was, uh, and like I said, it was, it was ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. It was like you're spinning disc going, that's much it's costing you now, Paul. I remember being out, I remember my lawyer came up from, 
from London or, or one of my lawyers, the guy that I was mostly in contact with, and he wanted to go trout fishing. And we ended up sitting on a boat in the middle of a, 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 a loch in the borders and he's fishing and we're discussing the case. And I was sitting there going, I could see it was like that's 150 quid. There's three, I, you know, I just paid 500 quid to hire a boat and go trout fishing and catch fuck all. Uh, so it's like, you know, it was, and I was where tongues was born from. And seemingly, I was told it is it is urban myth myth that when Rupert Perry um, heard the lyric to tongues, they were peeling him off the ceiling because he was so mad, you know, because it was the only way I could fight back was basically to to you know, hit him with a lyric. And I, I directed it straight at him and, um, and I'll give him his due. It was, uh, after everything that happened, I met him, I think it was, I'm trying to remember who it was, I think it was an Eric Clapton gig at the Albert Hall. And, and he came up to me after Suits and we just hit, we, we just hit, I think it was the, the number one indie album or something. And he came up and shook me hands. He said, I love the way, I love what you've done with the, you know, the logo, the way you've, you've set this all up. And he was an absolute gentleman and, and it was great. And we, we shook hands that day and it was like, we were still friends. And he summed this, you know, I've always admired. And, um, but it was a shame that it came to that. But, you know, you might have, I've always got some some fantastic memories of being with that company, and you know I, I loved being with my And what happened after when I signed to Polydor? Because when I moved to Polydor, I went with a guy called David Munns who used to work with EMI, and Polydor were basically in serious competition with EMI, and they took me and Talk Talk, and basically both me and Talk Talk, you know, over the next three years, their careers took you know big dips for whatever reasons, and um. And as I say, there's a lot of a lot in there that I can't discuss. There's a lot of there's a lot of intricacies and subterfuge and, and stuff going on. And and but when I went to Polydor, I was hamstrung. And you know, internal exile. My mind, you know, I was I was trying to concoct a piece of magic in the middle of a pig farm, and um, and it was difficult. And I and I did did pull out some gems, but uh, but tongues, as I said, was the, the one thing. It was all about the words. It was all about the legalese and sitting going into these strange places and bricked up lanes, going through walnut doors and, you know, tatty staircases into little walnut dark rooms stinking of cigarette smoke, talking to these people that were earning an absolute fortune. And, uh, and having to decipher and translate and gauge, you know, what was going on. And that was what Tongues was about, you know? So is at this point to go through play it. It's always ten past seven. I don't have ten minutes. We can still do the control room. Someone is watching TV. She said, can I watch TV if you're doing it three? I said, yeah, no problem. Right. Right. I'll go back to this. I've not been at... I had a call in 10 XL tour already in 91, yeah, Piero Kosova. Mark Palmer, I never rated MFI either. Terrible cabinets. <laughs> Uh, have I ever been in prison or jail, Bob Falk? I nearly was at that time. I used to have the most outrageous fantasies at that time. I, I could have written, I could have written some serious thrillers around about that time when I was fighting with you, my Anne Marillion. I was coming up with all sorts of strange ideas, but no, I've never been in prison. Thank God, and I've got no intention of ever going to prison either. Uh, um, Paolo Davi, hello from Italy. 
Dog Bob Davidson's tongue is a classic. Frank admitted to me at the Glen that he ripped off Satriani with the main riff, but we don't care. It's one of your absolute best tracks. I didn't know that, Bob. I didn't know that. I never mentioned it. But yeah, Death of Two Legs comes to mind by Queen. Yeah, Death on Two Legs, yeah. Well. But it's strange, I mean, you know, it's strange, you know, it's, it's in the long run. That's why I say, you know, I don't, you know, nowadays I, I don't get bitter about it or anything because, you know, what happened, happened, you know. And, you know, if if I hadn't left EMI, right, if I'd stuck with EMI and, and been in the Marillion, because Marillion, EMI owned all their copyrights for many albums after. And, um, and when I signed to Polydor, I did a thing called a licensing deal which if we'd done a licensing deal with EMI way back in 1982, it would have been a completely and utterly different ball game, right? And we didn't, right? So when I left after Vigil and I signed to Polydor, I did a licensing deal, which is why I own the copyright to every one of my solo albums apart from Vigil which, as I said, you know, we're in discussion with Warners to basically license from them. I tried to, I would have loved to have bought it back from them, but they will license. So we're trying to negotiate the license so I can put my entire catalogue together, you know, as, you know, put it out in the way that I want it to be put out. And, um, and it's a, a time license, so. But, but as I said, I mean, it was the EMI fight the fight against EMI introduced me to the, the music industry properly, right? And it was from what I learned from that that I took into the creation and the formation of the Dick Brothers. By going, by going on licensing deals to Polydor, I owned my material, which is why I am sitting here now in this studio that nearly bankrupted me, right? But I've got my own albums, and those albums are selling and keeping me alive. And that's why I'm able to do the remaster series and able to put my albums how I want them in the way that I want them, you know, and distribute them how I want, you know. And it was it was that control, you know, and I'm not, a, it's not been a control freak, but having that control, if I, if I hadn't gone through all that pain and grief, which eventually, I mean, you know, in truth, it, it would eventually, through other circumstances, cost me my marriage at that time. But it was... Um, but it was if I hadn't gone through all that, I wouldn't be here now, and it was worth going through the pain, you know, to to be able to have all my solo albums apart from Vigil, you know, under the one flag, and and being in in, in this COVID crisis and being able to survive because I'm 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 totally independent, and the studio that I fought for, you know, because I mean in, in two thousand one I was I was absolutely on the hair of bankruptcy. I mean, you know. As I say, the building cost three hundred grand to 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 make. That was the building, right? The equipment cost another three hundred grand, right? And I had to borrow money from from some the word shrewd investor. Is um, again, I can't really go into this because that is a legal thing. It's going to be coming up some. Not when I go into it, I've got to be meticulous in how I deal with it. But um, um, the invest I was paying interest which was you know beyond the joke and i was taken very much very much taken advantage of fair enough right but 
the 300 grand equipment, that was the crucifix, right? And that 300 grand equipment that I bought in 1991, it was sold in 1998 as part of the kind of, you know, <laughs> save our fish campaign, right? And I got 80 grand for 300 grand's worth of equipment. And the thing was that when I actually equipped the studio, when I put the plan in, the business plan in for the studio, the business plan was, was brought together in kind of in 1990, right? And that was when we wrote it all out. And well, it's a residential studio going up against the manor, going up against Rockfield and things. And we had the call cost it out and it made sense. And I could make an album every kind of two years. I had rehearsal time, but I could make it work, right? And then the recession kicked in. And the thing was that I'd bought all the equipment for the studio, right? And it was all... And all that equipment was suddenly variations of that equipment or whatever because there were so many studios going down in 1991 and 1992. If I'd held off for a year, I could have basically bought all the equipment that I paid 300 grand for for about 150 grand because all the studios were going down and I could have brought all the stuff in. But I didn't, you know. And it was just one of those things where the timing was out. And But like I said, there's no point in going back over it because this is a beautiful home now, right? And I've recorded every single album since Vigil, right? And this is a bit of an ooh moment, right? When you think about it, every single album since Vigil, that's, you know, Eternal, Suit, Songs, da -da -da, Rain Gods, Fellini, Field, you know, 13th, Feast, Weltschmerz, everything was recorded here, everything, right? And that saved me time and time again. If I hadn't had the studio and if I hadn't had that independence you know then it would never happen and I would be here talking to you so it's just a wee it's a story you know when sometimes when you're in your bleakest moments you know there's a reason why you're there because you're going to get taken into another area where you're going to learn and this studio to me just represents a, a continual learning process in life you know, and to what really makes me happy, right? And that's why when I do strip this control room down to brick, you know, there's going to be a certain amount of sadness. But in the same way as when I heard Weltschmerz for the first time, when I've heard the finished album and Callum sent me it, there's a feeling of losing something that's taking you into another area, you know? And it's a bit like the exoskeleton coming off, if you know what I mean. And this room is a special room. It always has been a special room. And I think it's going to continue to be so in a completely different area. And I want to put up big panels on the wall so that I can put sticky notes of screenplay characters and, you know, plot lines and things like that. That's what I want to do, you know. But it's... Um, but it is, it's, 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 it's always been a special place. And it's seen, like I said, it's fair share of funny dibblings and dabblings and, and devilry, devilments. And if Steve Vances is watching this, he's probably saying, don't see a thing, don't see a thing. Right? There's been some serious parties in this place. Right? And, you know, back in the internal XL days, I mean, you know, we'd, yeah, we'd, we'd be in the studio until three, four in the morning. And then, you know, but nowadays, when working with Callum and Steve, you know, when Callum's here, we finish work at like kind of six o'clock, five, six o'clock. And then we shut it down. We don't do that anymore. It's strange, but it's just the way we do recordings and the way we apply ourselves to recordings is different. I'll go here.
Pierre McNally, hi from an Englishman in Miami, great stories, thank you. Raymond Van Jeek, uh, Darren Gelder, uh, yeah. Paul Emery, I've seen quite a few artists now license some music to a music, bigger record company, it's so good you know, da da da. I, sorry, I'm, I'm, I've got a drift, I've, I've got a hold of this timeline. Oh yeah, the Max, that's from Steve. I mean, the reason that, that it's Max, I, I work on a PC, but um, Steve works on a Mac. And it's, it's basically because all the software that we were using was just, it was better to have a Mac. And we had access to Pro Tools, which, because I mean, the thing was, that, that 300 grand's worth of equipment, right? It sold for 80, right? And then what happened was that um, when we moved into the digital age, you know, when, you know, we were duplicating all that stuff on, on just software programs that you're picking up for a couple of hundred quid. And I think, but when we got the Mac, the original Mac in and stuff, I mean, we duplicated the entire 300 grand with software for about 15 grand. I mean, that, that was how much it changed. And that was, I mean, the studio was shut as a commercial entity in 1998. It went from being the Funny Farm Recording Studios, right? Uh, that's what it opened up as, the Funny Farm Recording Studios, which really made the farmer irate. He didn't like that at all. Uh, Funny Farm Recording Studios. Um, and then it became Millennium Studios because the guy, Jez Lawson, that used to work for me, we thought we had to have a kind of revamp in Millennium Studios, like naff. Millennium Falcon, why we went down that route. Anyway, so he thought that Funny Farm Recording Studios wasn't kind of attractive enough to like more corporate clients. But the problem was that Tara was born in 1991. So, I mean, that was the other thing. I mean, on top of EMI, the EMI argument, the Marillion argument, and building the studio, Tara was born, right? So I was suddenly a father as well, which was like, wah! <laughs> And um, so Tara was brought up in all this and she was brought up around bands and, and, you know, my then wife Tammy was dealing with bands and stuff and there was, there was a lot of issues. I don't even want to go in here, right? But it didn't, it wasn't working. The family environment was not working with a studio and, and, and basically our back room. And, um, and the, the thing was, the, the, the weird thing was 91, 92, 93, 94 and in 95, we were really struggling because, as I said, the, the recession, all the rates went down in the big studios and we just couldn't compete. We weren't attracting business because people would go to the bigger studios, like the, the name studios, and get deals there and rates there. So we were losing out. And it wasn't until about 96, 97 that the people started, it got a vibe. And that, that's what we've been looking for. That's what we've been trying to get since 91, 92. And it suddenly it was a hip place to go. It had a great vibe. Everybody loved the rooms. Even though everybody was working in digital, people loved the recording rooms and they loved the atmosphere outside. And and we had a, uh, we had a couple of labels. Um, one of them was um, uh, what Jazz... Blue Note, I think it was. It was one of the... Acid Jazz. Acid Jazz started putting a lot of bands up here and, and we had a lot of different bands coming in, a lot of young bands that were kind of basically like the equivalent of Marillion in 92, 92, 83. And it was keeping us alive. It was taking us over. It was paying the stupid interest rates we were playing. And then we started getting like the Blue Nile came here, right? And the Blue Nile did some work with, with Cal and Malcolm here and they were here for about three months or something like that. We had, we did some uh, sessions for Radio 4th. 
when Radiohead came here to do a, an acoustic session for Radio Forth, uh, um, Katie Lang came here. Um, uh, <coughs> it was then Janet, Mark Shaw from Then Jericho. We started doing deals with bands where it's like, you know, okay, we'll, we'll front you the money. We'll front the time of the studio pace on the back end. And that worked quite well for us. But, but 1998, like I said, my, my family life was in tatters. It was in, my, my, my manager was in shreds, right? And, uh, and at the same time on this front, on the studio front, I was going to have to replace the equipment and everybody wanted the new desk, the new toy, another toy. And the problem was every time you bought a toy, every time you bought a piece of equipment and you open, as soon as you opened the cardboard box, it was like, it was like buying a new car, it decreased in value by 30%. And, and the thing was, everybody wanted the toys, but the money to invest in those toys was horrendous. And we were, we worked out that even getting a, a smaller desk and trying to work it that way, it was like, it was still, it, the money we were going to have to spend just, it was just, we were just adding debt on debt. And we just, I just went, that's it. And that's when I sold all the equipment. Some of the equipment I wish I'd kept to hold on. But then again, it's like my book collection. You just end up amassing it in shelves. And, you know, and, you know, an equipment I'm not as soulfully attached as books. Well, Michael Bennett, hello from Germany. Uh, uh, Johan van der Veel. Um, I hope you've liked the control room show. I, I thought, I actually thought this is going to be interesting. I mean, th this is only the first of the stories. I mean, I can I can come back in here, but this is the overlay of kind of what is the control room, and uh, oh, the lights are on outside. I don't know if you can see it. It's probably too dark. But you can hear. You can just see that red maple. And hear the water from the Japanese garden. I just I call it the Japanese garden only because it's bamboo and maples and stuff. It's not kind of like a fundamentally properly proportioned, executed, designed Japanese garden. But it's a lovely place to sit. It's one of my mum's favourite places, actually. It's right outside the window, so she can hear the the, the, the the little fountain outside. Chris Gaskin, 55 today. Happy birthday. Laura Bittman Walt, hello. Dario Vitale, hello from Montreal. Is your website the only way to order the new album? Yes, it is. That's how we do it. You know, I don't sell to retail. We buy, buy it from here. That's it. Some people don't like it, but that's the way I do it, you know. As I've said before, most of the time you sell to retail, retail have got their own website and you just end up creating competitors selling on the internet, selling the same album. And yeah, so I don't do it. Right. Andy Laidlaw, Marina Buru, Harry Rooks, Martin Beveridge, Proto still the engineer's choice. Yeah, I mean, Steve's the tech guy. I mean, Steve's brilliant with tech. I mean, you know, he can do all sorts of things, right? But that's another story, and I've got a watch. It's 25 by 7. Uh, when are you going to write the suite of Vigil in the Wilderness of Mirrors? A fan from Quebec, Canada, Gene Dignard. I've done it. Right? Uh, what did the Blue Nile record there? Martin Beveridge. I can't remember. It was one of the. It's probably the last album they did. They were working on it. It's Blue, Blue Nile, too. They, they were working on albums for years and years and years. It was incredible. They're great guys. They were lovely to have around as well. You know? 
Mark Hancock, you got the album and tickets for Cambridge November 21. Keep your fingers crossed, bud. Right. What's for tea tonight? I'll take you through in a minute. Uh, the red and blue teddy in the back. Yeah, that's from uh, Darren and Kerry. And um, they made that for they made that for me. That was from... Uh, they gave that on... What the two was it? It's got Fish Robin, Steve, John Gavin. And it was uh, Gone Fishing. It was the... I think it was a Leamington. I think they gave me a Leamington. Nice people. Eric Como, my boyfriend is dressed. Eric Como, my boyfriend dressed up like fish for Halloween, and he's going to jam some Marillion at a house party. Can't wait. Be safe, man. Right? Uh, yeah, Halloween. I couldn't believe it. It's like. Somebody asked a question. Uh, it was like, you know, what's your memories of Halloween when you were a kid, right? And it, it's like, we didn't do trick-or-treating. We, we didn't do that. We, we, I don't really remember kind of wandering about. I remember we bonfires and things like that, but I mean, trick-or-treating is an American thing. You know, going up to Adore, trick-or-treat, give me stuff, you know? And it's, um, you know, kids going about picking up chocolate and sweets and stuff. We never did that. You know, we got duking for apples, apple duking, right? And I can see all you foreign buddies out there going like, what is this apple duking shit, right? Apple duking. It's designed, I think it's got something to do with drowning witches, but it's like, it's designed to humiliate young children, right? What you do, this, I don't know whether this is a Scottish thing or not, or whether it's, it's, it's um, I think it might be spread wider, but apple duking is basically... I mean, Halloween was all about humiliating kids, as far as I remember, right? You're either frightening them to shit, right? But apple duking was basically you fill a bucket or a, or a big basin with really cold water and you throw a bunch of apples in it, right? And what you've got to do is you stick your head in the water, right? And you've got to try and bite an apple, right? So to try and lift an apple out of water, freezing cold water, who thought that up? That's something that comes from Guantanamo Bay, man, right? And it's like, and of course it was always, ho, 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 push the heat down of the small child into the bucket and hold it there for 20 seconds. And, like, uh, and if you got, if you, you know, sometimes you go that, you go, ah, that. And somebody puts your head in just when you go for the wrong breathing, the wrong part of the breathing cycle. <laughs> and your face was freezing. The other thing, sticky treacle buns, right? So you got a bit of string, Right, and what you did was you put a bun on it, and then you covered it in black molasses treacle that tasted like shite. Right, and it was like, and you had to try and bite the treacle bun off the bit of string. What happens? Your face gets covered in treacle. Your clothes are covered in treacle. Ho ho ho! Look at the small children covered in treacle. Ho ho ho! No, I wasn't a big fan of Halloween. Halloween was just like I said, an excuse to basically humiliate children. Right, and then. The dressing up stuff was all right, when especially when you got a bit older and like you know, <laughs> dress. I was all Frankenstein was always kind of the one I was prompted towards, right? <sighs> but yeah, but I mean, you know, I I don't remember ever doing trick or treating when I was a kid. You used to walk about and you, there was fancy dress parties at Halloween with all this apple duking and stuff, and you know, but it's like, nah. but you know, everybody's going, what are we going to do? Because we can't go out trick or treating. Give me a break, right? And it's like, you know, everybody's going to lose their money. I'll like, you know, uh, 
It's a, you know, it's one thing I always remember every year. It's like down at the supermarket, they've got all these, there's an entire aisle of like orange pumpkin coloured costumes and witch heads and, you know, Frankenstein masks and stuff. And like, you know, and there's always an, and then like three weeks later, it's still there, like, you know, sell 50% discount, you know? And it's just an excuse to buy a load of shite, right? So, you know, I like the idea of people, you know, getting made up and, you know, getting costumes made up and stuff, but all this kind of ready-made off-the-shelf Halloween at ridiculous prices, you know, like, you know, like buy your, you know, spider web stuff, £15 a can, right? Well, geysin, yeah. Yeah, geysin. <laughs> Piro Kokobar, what a game. Yeah, oh, we must try that, that'd be great, let's do that tonight. Let's get a big basin full of freezing cold water and put apples in it. Right. John Smith, with flour in the water too, you must come from a really sadistic household. Right. Neeps or pumpkins? Alan Jenkins is a very good question. Neeps or pumpkins? Where I came from, Dalkeith, I always remember it was neeps. You always, well, turnips. What as other people in other countries called Swede, right? Turnips, neeps, right? So turnips, neeps. Yeah, that's what we used to cut the wee eyes out and put the candles in and put the tops on. Neeps, right? We didn't have pumpkins back in Scotland in the 1970s. They were for special people, right? I used to dream of pumpkins. Right. Suspended scones covered in treacle syrup for you to take a bite of. Yep, yeah, wait. A treacle bun, make a wiggle Simmons. <laughs> Alan Johnson, in the village, the kids are going out tracking or tracing. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a lot of people want to hold you for Halloween. Yes. I loved all the witchy stuff. It was, you know, going, you know, the graveyard stuff and all that Halloween thing. That was great. But when it got Americanized, it was shite, right? It just suddenly became, it was all about money and, you know, buying stuff. And it's like, it's not what it's about, you know? We did guys around the doors. The Americans copied us and made it more commercial, yeah. Is it not legal anymore, Apple Duncan like concourse? I don't know. Maybe, maybe Apple Duncan's been banned under the Human Rights Convention or whatever it is. Yeah. Add James Duckin or Bobbin. Dukin. Dukin for apples. Dukin. Right. It's half past. We're going to have to go through. Hugh Menzies, we used to drop a fork from our mouths and try and spear an apple. Probably a safe way invented by mum. That's been dropping an apple, dropping a fuck, trying to spear an apple. Yeah, but was it in water? Or was it just a, an apple lying on the ground? My dad, oh, uh, oh, this is good, this. Guys and five old Scots for dancing with the devil. Yeah. Side I didn't like Halloween either. We were still look here. I was forbidden to laugh on Halloween. The smaller kids found it too scary. <laughs> Uh, James Smith, who pressed the codger button? I don't know, mate. What do you mean the codger button? These are memories. These are good memories. Before computers. <laughs> Calls the via penny for the guy. That's completely different. The, oh, that's Guy Fox. It's completely... <laughs> yeah, I had James Plastic Environmental Nightmare in that tat. Yeah, we do. We did duking using cider. Kenny Tate. That's a duking with cider. We somebody get him out of the bucket. He's thrown up. <laughs> yeah. Frank and Fish Andy Laidler, thank you very much. 
That's the Welsh. <laughs> and if you were lucky, you'd have turned it planting. Yeah, Paul Emery, why aren't the Scottish folks carving neeps? It's all pumpkins now. It's true. You never see, you never see, you know, pumpkins. It's all, never see neeps getting carved into like little devilish faces. I love it. When Liam, my, my stepson, way back when I, when I first got to know him, we did a whole kind of pumpkin thing. When he, when he came across here, it was brilliant. You know, he was very good. He had some really creative designs, right? Right, we're going to have to go down to some music because we're going to get late. Right. Now, this is where I'm going to get very clever. Now, I could fall flat on my ass about this or I might pull it off. Well, but I have me on here. There's me on there, right? And I'm now going to walk through to the other room and go onto the laptop and continue my conversation with you there while playing music. So come with me and we'll take a wander. Drop this. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Oh. So, as I said, control room, mail room, office at the back. That's my home zone, but we won't go in there. I'm coming through, darling. Oh. Somebody was asking about it. She said, I was accused of being very CNNized by um, uh, an American chappy who's, I think, from Georgia. And um, my missus has been watching CNN. Hello. <laughs> so here we are. I have to switch the TV off. A lot of people more sympathetic or toy with the idea of, of, of dictatorships because they simply forgot. Come on, go off. Go off. Um, go off. Mm. Sorry, Diane. Like, <sighs> and people think that uh, authoritarian... There's too many bloody roads. I don't know. I know there's somebody out there going, what do you need? What you need is one of those really special remotes where you put all your remotes onto the one remote and you work everything off the one remote. I tried that and it was rubbish. And I just got even more confused. So, there you are. It's all done up for you tonight. Uh, we'll just drop that down a little bit so you can catch the candles. Uh, what dust? You can't see the candles. This is where it's going to fall off the bloody thing, isn't it? Well, there we go. There you are. Here's a wee vision. So. Lighting effects going down. Dim lights. And this is where heat remote, my wee heat remote, already there. And we press, don't fall over the wire to the computer, make an arse of yourself. 
did listen to it this afternoon. It was, uh, excuse me, babe. Oh. I did listen to it this afternoon. And I, was, I was trying to remember, like, loads of stuff on it. And it was Marion Cairns, a wonderful... Marion Cairns was a, a singer, an Australian lady. I don't know if you listen to Marion, but hello from us both. It's, uh, uh, just the stand. See when Spearbird doesn't have this problem. It's bent. Yeah. Yeah, Marion Cairns. I forgot, like, it was a really... It was a really angry song. I mean, we used to play it live. I mean, somebody was saying Pig Pen's birthday and things. It was like, you really... Like a long, cold day, it was one of them ones. Get it in, yeah! Yeah. So, this is going to go on a little bit, uh, a tiny little bit longer tonight, because it's, or do I just go for that one? It's, um, uh, nah, I don't want to break it down. I'll go for the shorter version one, babe. The shorter version song rather than the big long song. Uh, it's, um, Eric Van Alken, you can't hear anything. <laughs> Can't hear anything. Mm. So, sir, uh, oh, because I have slipped through to the other room in the fire, the wine is playing in my head. It's lovely. So, um, do you want to come across and do, do the both do, do things? Oh yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of things. I was going to do a load of stuff tonight, and I can't find it. And um, do you want to tell them what 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 was for dinner tonight? I've got to. I've got to go through and get the paperwork. Can you? Okay, so it's through on the on the just at my desk in the control room. It's a big scary day tomorrow. No, it's not just Halloween. It's the scariest of days. It's the Edinburgh Derby and uh, Hibs. The, the Derby, for those of you who don't understand, is the, the Edinburgh Derby is between Hearts, Heart of Midlothian, and Hibernian. And it's not just a normal derby, right? It's, this is a Scottish Cup semi-final, a rearranged Scottish Cup semi-final. Normally this would have been played back in, uh, around about kind of April time or whatever, March, April. And, uh, and it's get played on a dreich, horrible day at Hamden with no crowd tomorrow. And the weather forecast is absolutely horrific. It's like, you know, it's a kind of a Scottish football day that you absolutely, like, <coughs> loathe. It's going to be blowy, windy, rainy, wet. And not only is that, I mean, OK, Hibs are, 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 we're sitting currently, I think, I think we're still third in the in the Premier, the Premier League. And Hearts are, I think, top of the, the, the Championship. And, of course, with the whole COVID thing and the relegation issues because the games weren't played and everything, there's a lot of kind of thing going on there and, and stuff, you know. And you'd think, if you're going on paper, you just go, how's they going to win this? Because they've got, a, a, I think they've got a better team. But it's a derby and it's raining and it's windy and it's Hamden and it's a semi-final. And, I'm, and it's at four o'clock and it's live on BBC tomorrow. So I'm, my mum's going to be watching it through there. And I might even go through and sit and watch it with her because I'm going to be so fierce. I hate it because it's like, I get really nervous. Even the night before, right? Even the night before, you know, a game, you know, the, the nerves kind of kick in, right? And uh, so I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm dreading it. 
And so I'm going to be sitting here with a fire on tomorrow and we might have to get some some extra beers in and things. But it's, uh, So yes, it's Dar Derby on a Halloween. <laughs> and it, they were still, the neighbours were talking about having a bonfire, but everybody was reminded quite casually and quickly that uh, we can't actually do that because we're not allowed to. So we can't have all the neighbours around the bonfire tomorrow night. Um, which I was quite looking forward to. But as I pointed out to them, you know, said, okay, if we're not going to have a bonfire tonight, we can't have one on the 5th of November. We might have one at New Year. If we can't have one at New Year, by the time we get the bonfire next summer, right, this bonfire you're going to be able to see from space. <laughs> Peter, Junior Ashton, quite, quite good. Cloud Potvin, Graham Waller, Peter, our last hand in showdown will do. Yeah, 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 here we go. Here it all comes, yeah. 5-1, 7-0, blah, blah, blah. Um, Steve Bissett, most one-sided derby in football, more than the Jambos. How can you say it's the most one-sided game? It's a derby. It's never a one-sided game. It's like, it's, it's two clubs that, you know, it takes a flash of fever and a red card, you know, and a change happens. You know, it's it's nuts. And, you know, oh, what? John Michael Monaghan, Mondragon. What? Get real, mate. Uh. Oh, is the rugby on tomorrow as well? Wales at Wales and Scotland tomorrow, Garnie Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's football. Two one Leeds United. I'm not interested in Leeds. Tomorrow's the derby game, right? But like I said, it's going to be really weird. I mean, an empty Hamden. I've, I've seen... You know, I've been watching nearly all the Hibs games, but I mean, it's, it's a big game tomorrow. And I can't help but I, I can't help but think and go back to my my dad when it was there, uh, you know, when when my dad passed away, it was like just after we won the Scottish Cup final and we'd beaten Hearts on the way to winning that Scottish Cup final. But it's about whoever wins, it's going to be up against Celtic or Aberdeen. But you know, that's tomorrow. That's tomorrow. I was going to go and indulge a couple of things. Here we go. What have I got? What a wee, a wee story caught my day, which was good. A New York restaurant couple mistakenly mistakenly served a two thousand Mouton a two thousand dollar bottle of Mouton nineteen eighty nine after ordering an ordering an eighteen grand Pinot. <laughs> Seriously, it's this restaurant and there was two tables. There was a bunch of businessmen who ordered this two thousand pound bottle of wine, and a couple at another table who ordered an eighteen pound an eighteen dollar bottle of uh, Pinot Grigio. And the restaurateur got it mixed up and gave the couple the two thousand dollar bottle of wine. And it's like, and then he realised it, but he couldn't change it at that point, right? And the, the businessman was going, "Try the lovely little wine. It wasn't a two thousand pound bottle. What was it? <laughs> Muto ninety nine. And it reminded me of a story. Right? And it was Jimmy Finley, who is a friend of mine. He used to own the Waterside in, in Arlington. And I was there, I was there with Brian May, which, can it, Brian Lane, not Brian May. I was there with Brian Lane, who was my manager at the time, the XS manager, and he used to come up and swan up and do his bit, you know, and he was quite a big time manager, you know. He used to manage yes and stuff and all the rest of it, right? And anyway, this was, and this was about the time of Songs from the Mirror, which is, he took me on when I was on Polydor, which is, as I said, it kind of ties into Tongues, Rupert Perry, EMI, the studio, da-da-da. And, um... And he came up and he took us out for lunch at the waterside and he was doing his kind of like, you know, London's shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, he turned to Brian Lee, we were sitting at the table, it was myself and my then wife and, and Brian. And uh, Jimmy comes up and goes, uh, can I get you some wine? 
And uh, Brian just said, bring me the best one you got. <laughs> bring me the best one. Getting all big time at the waterside in Harrington, thinking it was like, you know, oh, bring you, what, it's going to be rubbish anyway, bring what you got, right? And he came in and he brought this bottle. Yes, sir. And, <laughs> and Brian nearly shat it <laughs> because he realised this bottle was like an £800 bottle of wine, right? And he just ordered, trying to go big time on Jimmy Finlay at the waterside, going like, there you are, sir. I've an 800 pound bottle of Mouton kind of night and fucking zubi zubi, right? And Brian went, all right. <laughs> and you could see his eyes go like that, going, fuck. <laughs> and I was like, and he's, he's, he's going, he's going, that's, a, that's an 800 pound bottle of wine, it is. And I'm going, is it? I've got no idea. Does he get you pissed, right? I'm not a wine connoisseur, right? I like wines and I've got to but when it goes into that realm, I've got no idea, right? I don't, I can't drink wine like that, right? I, mean, I love wine and I have tasted very expensive bottles of wine and really appreciated them. But, you know, it's not something I do. Ian Banks, right? I remember Ian Banks and I went out to lunch in Edinburgh one time and Ian was ordering these bottles that were like 90 quid, 100 quid each. I'm going, what? <laughs> anyway, the Waterside, Hangton, Jimmy Finlay, Brian Lane, an 800 pound bottle of red wine. And, uh, <laughs> and Brian's going like, this is, this is like an 800 pound bottle of wine. <laughs> and uh, the bill came up at the end and Brian was waiting on this, this thing and he, he was ready to do the challenge. And Jimmy Finley comes up and he goes, uh, the wine is on the house, sir. It was just absolutely perfect. The wine is on the house, sir. And Brian Lane was like, he didn't know what to do, right? And I thought it was one of the most, one of the coolest things that I ever, ever saw. There was somebody trying to, like, ping somebody on, on another side. It was, like, beautiful, you know? Oh. Jordan Bishop, yeah, you live in Gala Shields. It's a memorial to Kayleigh in the Market Square. Have you seen it? Yes. I was there when it opened. Oh. Oh. Arvey Larson, did you like my homemade wine that I got and and that you gave me in Oslo? I can still say so. It must have been good. Yeah. Kenny Tate worked for Jim Finley for fourteen years. Ah. Oh. Darren Gelder, quite ever quick, Marquis Soji. No, 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 no. I don't have that at all. Victor Felgarias. Portugal has great wines. I love Portuguese green wines. I got into them and I went out to Lisbon. I love Lisbon. I'd, I'd love to get back to po Portugal again, even just as, you know, not as a professional, but just, I, I love that place. A great vibe. <laughs> when it comes to sport, people are often rude to each other. Raymond Bonjik, really? <laughs> really? Is that right? See here, it's Pelters. I've got great friends that are heart supporters. I've got, I mean, I, I, I do not see the point of getting, like, I love the excitement of the game and all the rest of it, but, you know, I never get to that point where it's like, you know, I'm going to get in a fight over a football match. No way. It's just, I don't get that at all. It's like, and, you know, you get beat. You know, when I, I remember being, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, it used to take about five days, you know, and a derby could take, would take until the next game to get over because it's like, bragging rights, right? But nowadays, it's like, you know, if we, if we get beat on Saturday, but Monday, it's forgotten about. It's just a game, you know? Martin Allen, did you ever see George Best during his 17 games for Ebbs? 
Yes. An absolute wonder when he could be bothered. Right? <laughs> yeah, somebody's fired up the list tonight. Ria Rook's Fishing Friday t-shirts. I've uh, sent some things down to Mark Wilkinson. Um, as I noticed earlier on the timeline, somebody did a couch party and they've used the cartoon kind of vibe thing. This is... Um, it's... Um, we'll be doing that too. It's um, but a different one. Different blend. Different blend of cartoony. Uh, I turned Welsh now, Mandy Brain. Chicken. Uh. Brian Ferugia, hi from Malta. Cheers, mate. Yeah, place I've never been to for a long time. Simone and I had our honeymoon there. That was, we were there. That was the last holiday we had together in 2017. We went there for like seven days. That's our last and only holiday we've had so far. This expensive alcohol reminds me of the Astoria for that prog thingy with Carol Palmer. Clark McSepney. <laughs> Can't remember that. Gautier <laughs> Lambo, Celtic Rangers. You didn't get me. It's what? Hibs. Hibernian FC. That's such a sport. An Edinburgh team. Oh. Someone says hi. <laughs> Anthony Norris, I still remember the old Hibs song. We never win at home and we never win away and we never score a goal. We lost again today. Being a Hibs supporter, right, you know, you live with it, right? I mean, like I said, you have a passion for your club and I respect anybody that's got a passion for the club, be it Scunthorpe or be it, you know, hi there, Tosh, um, Notts Forest, I think it's a club. And, um, you know, we, we all get passionate for football and it's wonderful to have that, you know, but it's... Uh, there comes a point where, you know, you've you got to reel it in a little bit and, you know, <laughs> address the reality of the situation. It's football, right? Uh. Yeah, it was... So, Kevin Pfeiffer, what no hooliganism? Oh, I'm told of deal with that shite. Uh. George Connor in Croatia 15 years ago we were buying bottles of wine from homeowners. They had their own means of producing and storing it in tanks in their garage and it was very, very good. You'd be surprised. Some of these local grown wines are a lot better than the crap that you buy in the supermarket. The expensive crap. But we're here. It's, it's two minutes to eight. Darling, would you join me on the Master Catch? Please welcome <coughs> Mrs. Dick, the wonderful Simona. Yes. Hello. It's So, what's for dinner tonight, Mrs. Dick? It's goulash again. Goulash? Goulash with um, pochini mushrooms from my friend Kati Nietozhaka. <laughs> no, it gives a great taste. And um, German pasta. Oh, we're having pasta with it. Yeah, I know, but you will like it. Yeah, I know, I always like that mm. pasta, you know. Yeah, we've been having the ties. We've got the, the bags of the pink fur apples. Oh, man. Nearly every day. Oh, it's incredible. They're still, they're still underneath the soil. The stalks are all gone. I'm, I'm watching them in case they go up. I mean, they've just been brilliant. And we have pumpkins. 
We've been having pumpkins and all sorts of stuff. I should have carved one for the show tonight, but I didn't. I should have remembered. We forgot. We yeah. forgot. Yeah, but then we're not going to ducking apples and doing that shit. So, it looks like uh, we're going to be doing this for a while longer, by all accounts, going by the news. Um, uh, I wanted to talk about some other stuff. I was going to talk about... Um, there was a couple of things, American things came in. Thank you, babe. There was a couple of American people made comments. And I was going to address them. It was, uh, but I'm not. I'm going to wait till after next week. You know, talk about um, the Derby. It's like, you know, when you look at the American presidential election. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? Don't think just because I watch CNN that that's the only thing that I watch, right? Uh -huh. I don't think, you know, that I only read one newspaper. I don't. I read about four or five newspapers and I also go down the pages and I read and I try and take opposing views and I've, I've done quite a bit. I've been in America quite a few times. I've been at different places. I would never, by any stretch of the imagination, say that I understand the place. Um, I've read an awful lot about America and I'm currently reading an awful lot about America. And uh, it's an amazing country. And it's gone through really weird times, very strange times. And there's a high degree of nervousness about what's going to happen next week and how it's going to be taken by different people. You know, I find it sad that, you know, everything's polarised into red and blue and Republican and Democrat and, and things and the whole populist vote. I don't like Donald Trump. I'll put my hands up. I don't like Donald Trump. I don't like Donald Trump for a number of reasons, including the fact that he built a golf course up in Aberdeen and there was a woman who refused to sell her property that was on that golf course to his organisation and the, accidentally the water was cut off to that cottage and she never got water again and she was in, she was in her 80s or whatever and having to get buckets and take buckets to her house and things. That sort of thing annoys me. And I'm not an idiot. Uh, I watch a number of things. When I watch news programmes, it's not CNN, it's Channel 4, I watch BBC, I watch other things. I've watched Fox, I've watched, you know, other American things. I've watched a lot of documentaries, I've watched a lot of stuff. I'm not an idiot, right? I'm sorry, but I don't like Donald Trump as a person. I don't like what he said, and he's been caught out too many times lying. That's it. That's my view, OK? Um, I'm left-wing. I would probably burn at the stake, I mean, you know, in, in America in certain parts now. I mean, I'm, I am, you know, a socialist, which is, across there, it's very different. But I'll talk about this next week, once we get through it. I just hope that it's peaceful. I hope that it does settle, you know, because it's all about people at the end of the day and, um, and what's best for the country. And as the person who wrote to me, it was uh, Michael Spriggs, who I think is in Georgia. Um, you know, I know a fair bit, and I'm learning a lot more about America. And, I, you know, I think you'll learn more about the UK. I don't like Boris Johnson. I, I think the UK is in an absolute god for mess at the moment. Um, and I live in Scotland, which is part of the UK. And... Um, Nicola Sturgeon is our First Minister and she's been dealing with the medical stuff on her side. And I think she's been doing pretty good despite the attentions of uh, who I have. Um, what's her name? Baroness Ruth Davidson, who every time I see her, I just go, that's Daphne Brun, right? I cannot see her on TV without going, that's Daphne Brun. For those of you who are Scottish, right, you understand exactly where I'm at, right? She looks like a cartoon character called Daphne Brun. And, um, 
And I watch the way that our First Minister is handling it, and I watch the way that our small country is kind of dealing with this. And despite all the sniping and all the... the stuff that's going on at this moment in time, that's going on because, you know, with everything that is happening around it, there has been... And people see now Scotland's doing the... The, the vote for independence or the people who are looking at independence as a, a realistic option now is up to 58%, right? And um, and there's a lot of shenanigans going on and it is Halloween and there will be monsters coming out in the next two days, but there's, um, you know, as I said, I hope the monsters don't come out in America next week. Um, you know, when it really comes down to it, I mean, the whole COVID situation is a global worldwide thing. We should all be dealing it together. We shouldn't be trying to buy up medicines, you know, for our own countries or whatever like that, you know. But, you know, you know I, was, I was watching the Nottingham stuff today. and I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I don't want to end up on a downer because I've, I've enjoyed the show tonight and I've had fun, right? We're not having a, a bonfire tomorrow night because we can't, you know. Uh, East Lothian goes into tier three, which means no mixing households, da da da, other people can't come into our house. It's okay, I adhere to that, I follow the rules. I don't like the people that are turning around and going, it's a hoax, right? It's a conspiracy. Bollocks, right? This isn't like Neil Armstrong's landing on the moon where it was a relatively simple thing to do if you were that way inclined to falsify that. You can't falsify what's going on out there. You can't have that many people die, right? And continue to die. And as it appears, going by the number of hospital, hospital missions, the number of people that are going to ICU, and the new strain that is going on our frontline workers, because people can't be asked and don't believe it's real, right? It's, um, there's a wake-up needed, right? I'll follow the rules, and I'm happy to follow the rules. And I will be wearing a mask. I actually walked in a shop the other day, and I was talking to me, and I've... I'd forgotten about a mask and I was apologising profusely. I'm really sorry, da da da. We have to do it. You, you know, all you have to do is look at the numbers. You know, they're not going down, they're going up. And, you know, the February tour's gone. This carries on. You can kiss goodbye to the whole, the whole of 2021 as a gig year, right? You can't have, you know, the transmission rates as they are. We need the, the track and trace thing sorted out. You know, hopefully we're a bit further, but track and trace is the only way forward. But that is needed along with everything else that you're getting told to do. Socially distance, keep your hands clean and wear masks, right? You might get bored hearing this, but you cannot be apathetic, right? You cannot be apathetic. I get, you know, as I said, I walked in with that mask the other day, completely forgot, you know, and I think we have to stay vigilant. It's a mess, and all you have to do is look at the figures across in Europe and look at even the escalations in, in, in Belgium. You know, my American friend was on about how things were happening, and all you have to look at, I think it was Utah today, you know, people are going to have to make decisions in a world, right, about who gets ventilators and who gets, you know, the big treatment and who doesn't. And the people that don't, somebody in that, sort a doctor, or somebody in that hospital has got to make a decision on somebody dying or not, and who gets a hold of ventilators. And when you're in a society like that, and we're talking about the excitement of finding water on the fucking moon, right? It's like, can we please have a check here, right? We need to stay in charge of this as how we can. And the only way we can do that is basically cutting that R rate down, 
following the rules and trying to isolate and isolate and take it down, take it down as much as possible. I will not be on a stage anywhere near you until that is moving forward. Nowhere near a stage, right? And I am resigned. I'm mentally resigning after having, you know, cut the the, mark, the, 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 the February 20 tour. I mean, you know, the February 21 tour, you know. It's, it's the, the whole September, the whole European thing is under threat. You know, the whole tour and, you know, and I'm kind of mentally resigned myself to that. And we ain't going to get out on the stages. There are going to be no crew moving about. There are going to be no bands, no musicians, no concerts, no shows, nothing. Until, you know, we get our rates down and get the infection rate all the way down to a point where we can, we can safely go outside. I'm going to leave it at that. All right. It's, uh, I got angry this week at some points, and I don't want to bring that anger in. I had a great show tonight. It was lovely introducing you to the control room. And, um, and I'll go back there and I'll, I'll take you in there again and, and show you some bits and pieces because it's a little treasure trove of like, memorabilia and lots of wee bits and pieces. Right? All I'm asking you to do is just follow rules right? and just take care and, and, and be safe and just stay alive. You know? This ain't a fucking hoax. Right? It's not a hoax and it's not a conspiracy, conspiracy thing. This is genuinely really happening and we have to deal with it. And um, I'll tell you more next week. Well, we've got other plans, but I mean, I'm, I'm here. I mean, uh, you know, I'm going absolutely nowhere and I'll be here for every Friday up to Christmas and including Christmas and we'll keep this going. But all I'm asking you is like, you know, just play by the rules, you know, and, and just and follow them. You know, it is dangerous, you know, it is dangerous. And it is, as you can see, well see from figures, it's deadly. So, with this, have a happy Halloween. Didn't hang your head over the apples in the Dukin bucket for too long in case somebody thrusts you in. And make sure you wash your face to the treacle that gets in your fuss when you're going for your wee twilight. Take care, stay alive, have a great week, and I'll see you next Friday. And um, here's hoping I've got a big smile on my face after a semi-final win. Glory, glory to the high beast. Good night.